I invite you to take your Bible, whether that's an electronic device or a paper Bible, or you can grab a Bible off of the front pew. Take that out and turn to the Gospel of John. Hopefully you got a bulletin when you came in, and inside that bulletin there is an outline where you can follow along not only the scripture, but the sermon outline for this morning. Um, Our normal practice here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church is that we go through whole books of the Bible, verse by verse in succession. We're gonna take a brief break from that in the month of June, and you'll hear more about that in the days to come. But we typically do that process. We know that the Bible is actually a collection of 66 books, and we seek to preach through whole books of the Bible because that's how the Bible was written, in individual books. And so we wanna know what those books say within their context, verse by verse. And uh, we anticipate that we're gonna conclude our study in the Gospel of John in December of this year. I'm sure most of you have probably heard this saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Anybody ever heard that before? Yeah, of course. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I know there's that infomercial on the surefire process of making millions in real estate. All you got to do is pay X amount of dollars for this course and you can be a multimillionaire. Friends, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I know those before and after photos of the miracle diet pill that doesn't require any exercise, any change in your diet. You just take this magnificent, natural, organic concoction and you will shed the pounds and you'll have six pack abs in no time. Friends, let me tell you, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And this idea that we can get something uh, for nothing or something for little or have this great deal is really a temptation for many of us. Uh, There has been multiple occasions when I've had the unfortunate opportunity to walk through some unsuspecting victim to get them to realize and understand you've just been scammed. One such instance was about 10 years ago. had a lady come into my office, and she said, I need your wisdom, Pastor. And I said, what is it? And she said, well, um, I, I found a truck. Me and my husband looking for a truck, and we found one on autotrader.com. And it was a great deal. And so I reached out to the seller and uh, he said, yeah, my uncle passed away and left me this truck and I just wanna get rid of it. Really, there's a lot of memories there. I just don't really want it around anymore. That's why I'm selling it for 50% of the book value. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And so she said, well, I want it. He said, well, I've had lots of inquiries. You can hold it if you send me a 50% deposit of the $7,000 price. $3,500. So she Western unioned the $3,500 to this person. And he never contacted her again, and he he refused to answer her calls. And she said, came into my office really in tears, and she said, I don't care that he's maybe trying to get something out of him. I just want the truck. And I said, there is no truck. It's just a picture. He grabbed off the internet and made this fake ad to scam people, and it just hit her. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Well, a lot of the things that are in the Bible, the promises of the Bible, they often sound too good to be true. But guess what? They are true. And the promise that Jesus is going to make to his disciples in this upper room discourse, and by extension, the promise he makes to us, it sounds too good to be true, but it is true. And I want us to understand something about this promise. Again, we are in John 14. 
This is part of what's known as the upper room discourse. And if you've been with us, you know that two Sundays ago, we considered uh, what Jesus began to teach after Judas left the upper room. Judas went to literally sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So all that are left in the upper room are these 11 faithful, believing disciples. And so now at the end of chapter 13, all of chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 is Jesus's intimate profound instruction to these 11 disciples within 24 hours of when Jesus would be put in a grave. So this is important information. You know, a lot of times when somebody says says something just before they die, that's some of the most profound statements they'll ever make. And this is what Jesus says within 24 hours of his death. So look, let's look at our focal passage beginning in verse 12 of John 14. This is the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, You will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I've entitled this message, Greater Works Than These. And I obviously lifted that title right from the first verse in our passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these. And now the verses that follow verse 12 are essentially the how-to of verse 12. Verse 12 is the promise, the promise that on the surface seems too good to be true. And then Jesus follows and he begins to give the how-to of how we will as his disciples, not just the 11, but we will do greater works than what Jesus did. What? Well, I think it would help us to understand uh, before we get to the how-to section, which will occupy the bulk of my message, to understand exactly what is this promise Jesus is making here to his disciples uh, that they will do greater works than he did in his ministry. And really, I'm going to answer three questions. You'll see the three questions on the screen. The first question is this, to whom is the promise given? 
Question number two, what is the nature of the, quote, works Jesus promises we will do? And number three, why will it be possible to accomplish greater works than the works that Jesus has done? First question, to whom is the promise given? And the answer is right there in verse 12, everyone who believes, whoever believes in me. So he's not just talking to the 11 in the room. Let me ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, greater works than these you will do. That is fantastic. That is phenomenal. He says this promise to us. And then the next question, what is the nature of the works? Well, Jesus used this word greater, greater works. And you can see there, I've called it mega works because that's the Greek word underneath greater, mega works. Oh, what are these mega works? What does he mean that we're going to do mega works? Are we somehow going to do miraculous things that are much more astonishing, much more spectacular, much more fantastic, fantastic than anything Jesus did? Is there in heaven some type of miracle meter? And as you look at this miracle meter, you can say, okay, these works are okay. These works are good. Jesus' works are great. But after Jesus, the miracles we do will even be greater miracles. Is that what he's talking about? Well, the answer is no, that's not actually what he's talking about. I mean, think about the miracles that Jesus performed just in the gospel of John. There's seven primary miracles John records. There's many, many more throughout the other three gospel accounts. The first one is in chapter two, when Jesus turned water into wine. Anybody done that lately? You move into chapter four and he reads the mind of the Samaritan woman. Later in chapter four, Jesus heals while he's in the town of Cana, he heals this royal official's son who's 16 miles away in Capernaum. Phenomenal. That is a great miracle. He fed the 5,000 with a little boy's lunch. He healed the crippled man who had been crippled for 38 years. In John chapter 6, he walked on water. In John chapter 9, he healed a man who suffered from congenital blindness, blind from birth. And later in John chapter 9, he did perhaps the most fantastic miracle John records. He raised a four-day dead Lazarus to life. Anybody raised anybody from the dead lately? So I think when Jesus says, greater works than these you'll do, disciples, He's not talking about just the spectacular and the miraculous and the astounding miracles. Now, it is true in the book of Acts, the apostles are recorded as being the instruments through whom God performed miracles of healing, but much more prevalent in the book of Acts than these miraculous powers, supernatural powers, we see the power of conversion. The first miracle in the book of Acts, after the Holy Spirit came down in Acts chapter 2, is 3,000 souls were saved. Friend, that is a miracle. And we see the Apostle Paul and Peter and Philip and, and others going into these pagan towns and pagan villages and pagan regions, and people are coming to faith in Christ, destroying their idols. The Roman Empire was filled with idolatrous temples, but within 300 years of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, paganism was virtually wiped out in the Roman Empire. You know what that is? That's greater works. So Jesus' ministry was basically confined 
to Judea and Galilee. Uh, Paul tells us that after his resurrection, he appeared to some 500 at once, but right after Pentecost, 3,000 souls. So immediately, the number of followers of Christ multiplied extensively. And this is really what I believe Jesus is referring to with regard to greater works than these. In fact, we get something of a, um, a hint, a clue about what Jesus is referring to in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 10. In chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, Jesus sends out 72 disciples on their own without him with them on this short-term mission trip. They come back and they are rejoicing. They are celebrating. They are giving each other high fives. And Jesus says, what are you guys so excited about? And they said, listen, the demonic forces that were uh, inhabiting people, we were able to cast them out. We had power over demonic forces. Notice what Jesus says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Instead, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You know what's greater than having some type of supernatural authority over demonic forces? To see a new name written in glory. This is the greater works that Christ is telling his disciples and he's telling us that we will be able to do because of who he is and what he's doing. He explicitly weighed the value of physical miracles over spiritual miracles. And he said, you know what? The spiritual miracles are much more praiseworthy. That's what you ought to be high-fiving each other about. That's what the angels in heaven are rejoicing over. Third question, why will it be possible? Why will it be possible for his disciples to do greater works than Jesus did? Well, he gives us the answer in verse 12 at the end. He says, because, here's the purpose, here's the reason, because I am going to the Father. There was something about Jesus saying, I'm going to be crucified, I'll be buried, resurrected, and then ascended and exalted on high. Something about him going back to the Father that is going to be the reason why we will do greater works, spiritual works, than what Jesus did. Why is that? Because when Jesus was on earth, he was confined to his humanness. But as we just read here in John 14, after he ascended, he said, I will send another helper, the spirit of truth. And it's because Jesus was with his disciples, but through the spirit of truth, Jesus is now in his disciples. And this is why it will be possible to do greater works than these. Now, you may be here and you may say, hey, I'm a believer in Jesus. I believe this promise, even though it may sound too good to be true. But if I were honest with you, I couldn't say that, you know, I've seen greater works than what Jesus has done. Why not? Well, that's where we're going to get to the how-to portion of Jesus' instruction to us today. How do we see him, through his spirit, do greater works in our lives individually and in our church corporately? There's two main points on your outline I want to enumerate for you. Number one is this. They are accomplished through the alignment with his person. These greater works will be accomplished when we have an alignment with his person. Twice, Jesus repeats this phrase, ask in my name. In verse 13, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. 
the Father may be glorified in the Son. And in verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, anything, I will do it. What does Jesus mean by ask in my name? Is this just the tagline of how we're supposed to conclude our prayers if we want to give a little bit of extra oomph to them? We pray this prayer, and then we just said, and in Jesus' name, I pray. Is that what he's talking about? Well, there's certainly nothing wrong with ending your prayer in Jesus' name, so long as you're aware of why you're saying in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, does, if you just say this as a tagline, it's not like, okay, now that you said those magic words, those hocus-pocus words, Jesus is obligated to do whatever you want him to do. There's a word for that. You know what it is? Sorcery. <laughs> Jesus is not encouraging sorcery here. Jesus is not teaching that, but he's teaching a divine alignment. What Jesus means by saying, ask in my name, is ask in alignment, in congruence with his person and with his purpose. Every year, my dad sends me a birthday card in February, my dad has been a Gideon, those people who pass out Bibles, for 40 years. And every day or every year when I get the birthday card from dad, I know what it's going to be before I even open the envelope. I open it up and it says, there have been five Bibles given in your name. And I'm honored by that. Thanks, dad. Now, let me just tell you, if you came to me and you, or you gave me a birthday card, and I open it up and it says, in your name... I have given a gift to the University of Tennessee football team. That would not be in alignment with my person. That would not be in alignment with my purpose as a human being. Do not give to the Vols in my name. You're welcome to, but that ain't in, in my name. You may do it, but that ain't right. So let me tell you this. What if you say, I declare in Jesus' name, a new boat. I declare in the name of Jesus a diamond-studded Rolex watch. Is that according to the purpose and person of Jesus? No, it is not. In fact, what that is is blasphemy. I didn't say that you giving to Tennessee in my name is blasphemy. But asking for a Rolex in Jesus' name, that's blasphemous. That's not what it means. When you ask God to do something miraculous according to his name. That's according to his person and according to his purpose. Now, there's a couple things we see from Jesus' instruction here about aligning our request, aligning our asks with the very person of Jesus that kind of uh, flesh this out. First of all, when we give the ask, it is for a specific objective, the ask we make in Jesus' name, Jesus clearly says you're, you're trying to accomplish a particular objective. What is the objective? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. God is all about his glory. And anything you ask in the name of Jesus, he will do it if it's for the glory of the Father. That's the objective. That's the goal. Do we come to the Lord in prayer and, and do we ask God, will you do this work so that you will get great glory? 
God, will you accomplish this in my life, in my family, in my community, in my school, at work? Ultimately, so you will be glorified. I've told you before, but I'll remind you, if you come to me and you say, Pastor, would you please pray for me about this issue? I am always honored to pray for you. But I always pray this prayer. You need to know this. God, you do whatever you want to do in their life to bring yourself the most glory. Bringing God the most glory may not bring you the greatest comfort. Bringing God the most glory may not bring you the greatest prosperity or success. But ultimately, that's the objective for which we ask Jesus to work and to move. And these are the greater works he will do in us and through us. We ask for this specific objective, the glory of God. But here's the second qualifier. We ask through submissive obedience. We ask through submissive obedience. I've told you before, Bible students, whenever you're reading a passage, you're studying a passage, one of the things you look for is repeated words and phrases. And so I want to show you a repeated word or repeated phrases in our text for this morning. Uh, Four times, Jesus says, essentially, obey what I tell you to do. I've told you things to do. Do it. (laughs) That's what he says. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my word. You think Jesus is trying to make a point? Alignment with Jesus includes doing it for the glory of God. That's our overarching objective. But it also includes having submissive obedience to the commands of Christ. We know the commands of Christ. It's not just the words written in red in your red letter edition of the Bible. Because Jesus is God, the whole Bible is the commands of Christ. And did you notice that three of the four instances here when Jesus says, obey me or keep my law, keep my commandments, keep my word, he connects it to another word, love. If you love Jesus, you will obey what he tells you to do. In our modern era today, there is this pitting against of each other of love and law. And never the twain shall meet. People have this mindset. Well, if if you're really a loving person, you won't ask them to keep some type of law. Let love govern Everything, And it's on this basis that recent generations have been taught what's called the new morality. And here's the premise of the quote-unquote new morality, even in the church world. The constant is love. The variables are everything else. And so the idea is, so long as you love, just so long as you love God, so long as you love Jesus, well, then everything else works itself out. And what happens is, if you say, well, I'm governed by the constant of love, then what happens is everything then becomes permissible. It's called antinomianism. Namos means law, anti-law, no law. It's just love. You know, if you love people, 
you, then, you won't cast any aspersions on their lifestyle choices. And not only if you love and let love be the constant, you'll celebrate what other people do. That's what loving is. And if you don't celebrate other people and their lifestyle choices, well, you're obviously not a very loving person. It's interesting, the Bible gives us commands on what love looks like. Jesus indicates here there is an unbreakable connection between love and obedience to the commands of Christ. I want to show you just a couple of them uh, on the screen. 1 Corinthians 13.6, Paul writes the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, love rejoices with the truth. That means we don't rejoice with lies. We don't rejoice with deception. We rejoice in what is true and what is right. Ephesians 4.15, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth is the most loving thing you can do. Now, you speak it in love with kindness and compassion, but you speak the truth. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Being a loving person means you say, this is evil, this is good. That's love. And so Jesus makes this unbreakable connection between love and obedience. This lawless mentality is not a demonstration of love. We celebrated our graduates this morning, and this season we're in certainly involves a lot of graduation ceremonies, and as a youth minister for better part of 20 years and now a pastor for 15 years, I've been to my share of graduation celebrations. And as such, I have endured many commencement addresses. Most of them fall into a not worth listening to category, if I'm honest. Last December, when my daughter Amber graduated from UTC and we were at the commencement, one particular address that was given, I had to hold on to my seat to not jump up and say, boo! <laughs> There's one particular commencement address that has been well publicized and critically acclaimed by Pulitzer Prize winning author and New York Times columnist Anna Quinlan. She gave this commencement address at St. Lawrence College in Bronxville, New York. Here's part of it. She says, look at your fingers. Each one is crowned by an abstract design that is completely different than that of anyone in this crowd, in this country, in this world. They are a metaphor for everything. Each of you is as different as your fingertips. Why should you march to any lockstep? Our love of lockstep is our greatest curse, the source of all that bedevils us. It is the source of homophobia, xenophobia, racism, sexism, terrorism, bigotry of every variety and hue because it tells us there is one right way to do things, to look, to behave, to feel, when the only right way is to feel your heart hammering inside you and to listen to what its timpani is saying. I can't think of worse advice to give a group of graduates. Listen to your heart. 
And I don't know if you noticed that she has a logical fallacy in her speech. She says, you'll hear people tell you there's only one, there's not one way, right way to, to live. And then she says, there's only one right way to live. Follow your heart. What does the Bible say about following your heart? The prophet Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? My advice to our graduates, don't follow your heart. Follow the commands of Christ. So this is a true demonstration of love for him, that we obey his commands. We follow his law. And that's the first how-to of this uh, explanation that Jesus gives. You have an alignment with the person of Jesus. You have an objective to glorify God, and you submit and surrender to obedience to his commands. Here's the second layer of the how-to section, to do greater works than Jesus. Number two, they are accomplished through his power. These greater works are accomplished through his power. So obviously, doing the prospect of greater things, it requires supernatural power. It requires a power source outside of us. It requires an impartation. It requires an indwelling. Now, one thing that particularly struck me whenever I read through this passage uh, last Monday for the purpose of preparing to preach, as I'm just reading through it the initial time and reading through it again, one thing that I was struck with is the repetition or how Jesus really emphasizes the triune God. He describes the three persons of the Trinity. And uh, this concept of the Trinity, it, it is somewhat veiled in the Old Testament, though it's there, but it is out front in the New Testament that we worship and we serve a triune God. Um, my catechized children ought to be able to answer whether or not God is triune. So here's a question, children. How many persons are, I've not given them a heads up, by the way, as far as I'm going to ask you this question. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Oh, they're so, make me so proud. Look at the answer. Here it is. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in essence, and they're equal in power and glory. Now, we know throughout the Gospel of John, if you've been with us in this study, Jesus has again and again, and again, and again, claimed equality with God. He has claimed as being equal, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. Uh, throughout the, the Gospel of John, John has recorded those seven profound I am statements of Jesus. We looked at one last week. We've got one more to go. But Jesus made these I am statements. And that word I am, in Hebrew, it's known as the tetragrammaton. The tetragrammaton is just this almost unpronounceable word that has come to be what we understand as the name Yahweh or Jehovah. 
And Jesus again and again in the Gospel of John takes this name of Yahweh, of Jehovah, and he applies it to himself. And according to the Mosaic law, to apply the name of God to yourself is blasphemy, punishable by stoning to death, unless, of course, it's true. In fact, let me show you one such instance in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 8, this is certainly the way the Jewish leaders interpreted what Jesus was saying. John chapter 8, verse 58 says this, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people, Father Abraham, before he was, I am Yahweh, Jehovah. This is Jesus. And how did they respond? So they picked up stones to throw at him. Did Jesus say in the next verse, oh, you misunderstood me. I wasn't saying I was God. No, because you know what? He was saying, I'm God. Again and again and again, Jesus claims to be God in human flesh. But here in our passage, he attributes this same nature, this same identity to the Holy Spirit. This is profound. This is mind-boggling. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. In verse 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. First of all, I want you to notice the pronouns that Jesus uses to refer to the Holy Spirit. It's the personal pronouns, he or him, not the impersonal pronoun, it. The Holy Spirit is not an it. There's a lot of confusion today about pronouns. Jesus had no confusion about pronouns. He used the personal pronouns, he, him, whom, to refer to the Holy Spirit because he is a person. He's not just some energy. He's not just some force. He is a person. He is a person, which indicates as a person, he is deity. But next, I want you to notice this phrase, another helper, there in verse 16. He said, I will give to you another helper. Let me tell you about this word, another. In the Greek language, in biblical Greek, there are two words that are translated into our English language as another or as other. Look at the next slide. One word is the Greek word alos. Another is the Greek word heteros. You could probably find an English word we get heteros from. And you'll see what, what heteros means. Alos means another of the same kind. Heteros means another of a different kind. My wife is another of a different kind. Right? That's heteros. You get where I'm going? Okay. So when Jesus says, I'm going to give another helper, which is it? Jesus used the term Alos in, in the um, Sermon on the Mount. He said, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him what? Alos cheek. It's another of the same kind, <laughs> right? So here he's talking about, I'm going to send another helper. Is it a helper of a different kind? Or is the Spirit of God a helper of the same kind? Alos. The Holy Spirit is the same as Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit is the same as God the Father. They are the same, equal in power and glory. Make sense? So that's one aspect of alos and heteros. Um, I got to use this illustration. I forgot about it, but my wife was kind to bring this to me, so I've got to show you this illustration. I completely slipped my mind, honey, so since you were kind enough to do this. I've got two onions here, right? This is a Vidalia sweet onion, and this is a, what is this called? Just a purple onion? Okay. This one stinks, let me just tell you. Um, This one, I I think I could eat it like an apple. I'm not going to demonstrate that, but I love Vidalia onions. They're both onions, but they are (laughs) They are of a different kind. I won't eat this one like an apple, okay? Okay, let's get rid of that smelly thing. So I want to make sure I show the difference between heteros and alos with those onions. So again, Jesus uses this word alos, the same characteristics, the same attributes, the same nature of deity. But also notice he uh, says that this promise of the Holy Spirit in verse 17, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. What is this promise? Well, here's present tense and future tense. He presently dwells with you. This is the people of God throughout the entire Old Testament. The Spirit of God would come upon people, would be with them. But Jesus is saying, he will be in you. What is this? 50 days from here, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come down upon those 120 gathered in the upper room and he wouldn't just be with them, he would be in them. He would dwell within them. I'll real, quick, real quickly, I wanna work through these three subpoints so we can go eat some food truck food and uh, I want you to understand how the Trinity is seen even in this passage and the three persons of the Trinity. These things can be powerfully accomplished because of the provision of the Spirit. The provision of the Spirit. Again, verse 16, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another, alos, of the same kind, helper. Now I talked about another, let me talk about this word, helper. Most of you've probably been in church a while, you've heard this word, it's the compound Greek word, paraclete. Uh, Some translations say comforter, some translations say counselor, another counselor, and counselor really has the concept of a lawyer, an attorney. Uh, This was actually used, the term paraclete was used in the first century Rome to refer to your advocate, your attorney, who pleaded your case. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you another advocate, another helper, another attorney, another counselor and comforter. This compound word paraclete comes from the first prefix para, which like parallel lines means alongside. And then kaleo is the verb, which means to call. And Jesus says, you're going to get the parakaleo is the verb form. This one who is called alongside you. This is the Holy Spirit who's your counselor, your comforter. He strengthens, he empowers, he convicts, he corrects. So the power to accomplish greater works than these is the provision of the Spirit, this other helper of the same kind as Jesus and as of the Father. Secondly, These are accomplished because of the presence of the Son. In verse 18, he says, I, Jesus, the Son of God, will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will love him and manifest myself to him. So this is what Jesus promises, his personal, ongoing, 
never-ending presence with his disciples. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. So how do we have the very presence of Jesus? Through the Spirit. Remember, these three are one God. They're the same in essence and power and glory. So when Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, you're going to have me. Often in the New Testament, the terms Spirit of God, Holy Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, Spirit of Christ, they're used synonymously. They're all speaking about the same person, the third person of the Trinity. Let me show you one example, Romans chapter 8. Paul writing to the church in Rome says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Well, who is it that's in us? Is it the Spirit? Is it the Son? Or is it the Father? The answer, yes. (laughs) All three. They are one. He is three. The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of God. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Isn't that a great promise? It's incredible. So we have the provision of the Spirit, the presence of the Son. But friends, we can do greater works than these powerfully accomplished through the passion of the Father. The passion of the Father. Look at verse 23. This is the second time he says this. Jesus answered them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. He said that again in verse 21 earlier, you will be loved by my father. Jesus repeats this promise that you have as an ironclad promise, the loving, passionate, unconditional affection of God. And this love of the Father, it's something like a bow that really ties all of this together. We're not abandoned as orphans. Why? Because we're loved by God. The Holy Spirit will be with you as a counselor, a comforter, a helper. Why? Because you're loved by God the Father. You have been adopted. You've got a new name in glory. Why? Because of the love of the Father. Our Heavenly Father passionately pursues us. This past Friday, we lost a champion of the modern-day evangelical church, Pastor Tim Keller, out of New York City. Uh, he was a brilliant scholar, a um, church planter in, in as liberal as you can get Manhattan, New York City. Uh, the Lord used Tim Keller and his um, kindness and clarity in the gospel to build a strong multi-thousand people congregation. Brand new church in the last 25, 30 years. Um, Pastor Tim Keller was unwavering on the gospel. He was unwavering on a, a biblical sexual ethic. So he died on Friday from pancreatic cancer. One of my favorite quotes, and I've read many of his books, um, Easter three years ago was basically a Tim Keller book. You didn't know it, but I just confessed it to you. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> he uh, has a lot of quotes that really uh, have impacted me, but this is probably my favorite. Keller wrote, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed at ourselves than we ever dared believe. What does this mean? 
your heart is desperately sick. You don't think people can be self-deceived? Let's listen to some people sing that think they can sing. They're self-deceived. We're a lot worse than we ever thought we were. But the quote continues. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Oh, what a glorious promise. Yes, we are wicked. Our hearts are deceptively wicked. We really don't understand how bad we are. Yet, neither do we fully understand how loved we are. You are passionately loved by God. And love is the power. Love is the energy. Love is the purpose. Love of God is the motivation of all that we do. It's the motivation of the gospel. Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinful, while we were still flawed beyond what we ever dared believe, while we were reprobates and degenerates, while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us in this. Christ died for you. What love. And he took upon himself your sinful and flawed behavior and law-breaking so that he could give you his righteousness and establish you as his child forever. What a beautiful promise. He's in us. He loves us. And because of these promises, he says, you know what? Greater works than these you're going to do. So church, let's walk in faith to what the Bible says. What Jesus said is true about us as his children. Amen? And that leads to my last thought. We can joyfully anticipate great things to be done among us because the Lord does not abandon his own.